This is the Brazil Institute podcast, and I'm your host, Anya Prusa. On May 6, a police operation targeting gang members in Jacarezinho in Rio de Janeiro left 28 dead. It was the bloodiest police raid in the city's history, but police violence is far too common in Rio's favelas, with residents often caught up in conflict between drug traffickers, paramilitary gangs, and the police. In the last decade, Brazilian police have killed 33,000 people. Rio's police alone have killed roughly 9,000, three quarters of whom were black men. On this episode of the Brazil Institute podcast, we are joined by Alona Zabo, the co-founder and president of the Igarapé Institute, a nonpartisan think tank headquartered in Rio. She is a recognized expert on questions of police violence, crime, security, and public policy. Alona, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Anya. So to start things off, I was wondering if you could explain what actually happened in Jacare's Nio, including why the police did the raid in the first place. Yeah, so as you just mentioned in your introduction, violence, unfortunately, is not new uh, to Brazil and much less to, to Rio. And police violence, uh, I would say Rio de Janeiro is really an outlier even for a country considered to be, you know, a violent country, uh, as it is Brazil. So this operation uh, was uh, supposedly, and there are doubts about that because the justifications um, are not public. They just put the whole uh, operation in under uh, what they call uh, like a confidentiality rules, which will try to fight back. But it was supposedly to to go after 20 people that were recruiting minors uh, to work in the drug trade. And it's, uh, it's um, I would say, an odd operation, uh, the way it started, because it started with the, the bureau that uh, takes care of protections of child and adolescents. Uh, and just given the way it was planned during the day where they knew uh, in a dense populated area as it is the favela of Jacarezinho with almost 40,000 people officially living, we know the number is higher, there would be casualties. And, uh, you know, the children and adolescents that they would like to protect would be also endangered. So what happened, uh, this operation also defied the Supreme Court ruling that says that during the pandemics, uh, operations in favelas have to be uh, only uh, really uh, implemented under exceptional circumstances and uh, informed to the prosecutors of the state. So the prosecutors were informed after the operation started. Uh, it started, uh, and unfortunately, a police was killed right in the beginning. And what was already, I would say, uh, ill-planned operation, in my view, became revenge. So they went after uh, revenge for the police, uh, that the policeman that was unfortunately, again, saying killed in the beginning. So uh, the results uh, cannot in any standards be commemorated. Uh, And the dialogue uh, on this issue in Brazil has been, I'd say, very, very polarized. So for the state, this was, you know, a normal operation that have its casualties. And of course, in a democratic uh, state, we, we, we know we have to dig into this. Uh, we need to understand who was killed and, 
uh, you know, self-defense for the police who were uh, the ones that were executed. And there's a lot of, uh, let's say, conflicting reports. Uh, and it's just um, a testimony to the very hard moment we're living in the country. And I think, Alona, you mentioned, you know, that the state sees this as a typical operation in some way, right? And that the casualties are are what happens in this effort to to combat drug trafficking and, and gang control. Um, but that actually speaks to the level of violence that we do see, right, on a normal basis in Rio de Janeiro and other parts of the country. Um, you know, there is this decades-long history of conflict. And so, you know, I would love to hear from you, um, you know, what has been, you know, some of the lessons from this conflict, um, are police raids actually, you know, effective when it comes to trying to contain drug trafficking? So I think it's very important to say that, of course, this police violence is not to blame the police alone. It's a societal issue. Uh, parts of uh, our society in Brazil, unfortunately, support police violence because they don't really understand what are the other ways uh, that you can you know, improve security in the country. This issue was always politicized and never dealt uh, in depth and with the responsibility it requires. Uh, Rio is, again, as, as I said, an outlier. Uh, not only uh, we we elected a governor on the ticket that uh, he would shoot bandits in the head, that was his campaign ticket. Now he was impeached and we have his vice governor as uh, a governor uh, at the moment with the same uh, you know, rhetoric uh, as we're seeing and the same practice as we're seeing. So even just to put into perspective, uh, Rio uh, police just, uh, you know, last year uh, killed 1,200 people. So just to put into perspective, the whole U.S., you know, just comparing a population of over 300 million, uh, you know, had, okay, it's a very high number, but 1,000 victims. So Rio State alone, 1,200 and after a year, which was 2019, that killed 1,800 people, which was absolutely like the record. Uh, and so so what is happening in Rio de Janeiro and Brazil, and these two governments are, are aligned, we don't have a public security plan in place. We had a major advance uh, in 2018 when we approved uh, in Congress a national policy for public security, a 10-year plan for the first time, funds that would allow the federal government to uh, really incentivize uh, the good technologies and the good behaviors and what we know in terms of intelligent uh, prevention and smart policing. Uh, but this is not happening. Rio uh, has um, a total lack, I would say, of, uh, of clarity of what is the objective of this operation. So what we need to see, we need to see a plan uh, we know the priorities in Rio, which would be reduce lethality, police corruption, and fight organized crime. Uh, we know that to fight organized crime, you need to go after the guns and go after the money. And, you know, in the case of Brazil, we really need to revise our drug policies, which allow for this kind of, uh, let's say, uh, never-ending negative cycle of violence because the justification of all these deaths that, oh, they're drug traffickers. Even they we don't even, we didn't even know the names of the people that were killed, but they already condemned 
as drug traffickers, so you know, so they are uh, people that could be killed the way they were without the due process uh, of justice. So, dare to say, uh, we know the recipes. There are several public policy agendas and plans. We just really, at the moment, miss the political leadership that is able to take uh, this seriously. And just to to uh, put a, a important point here, I think the public policies uh, just regarding security, being real, being the country, are the main threats to the democratic consolidation of Brazil because we don't understand as a society the danger of allowing the disproportionate use of force and mostly over vulnerable population and black people. And that's something that we accept as like casualties or part of the plan to fight crime, but it's a never-ending game. As we know, it's just, uh, as we say in Brazil, we're just drying the ice. And I, I want to circle back on what you just mentioned about um, minorities and other vulnerable groups being disproportionately impacted by violence, right? Um, I read that you know, about three quarters of, of those who are killed by police in Rio are, in fact, black men, often younger black men. Um, and, you know, certainly in the U.S., there is now a huge debate about, um, you know, policing and race and some of these big questions we've seen protests in the streets here in the U.S., um, especially over the last year. And there have been some protests in Brazil and some discussion of this, but not nearly to the same extent. Um, so I have two questions, really, right? You know, one, could you talk about, you know, the impact of Brazil's policing models on, you know, Black Brazilians and other vulnerable groups? And then two, you know, why hasn't there been um, as much of a public outcry? Yeah, unfortunately, I think we didn't get to the point where we understand that, uh, Public security, as we call, like security is for all, and we cannot accept that citizens that live in vulnerable areas are treated or are, the law applies differently for those that are the most vulnerable. You know, we should be just trying, you know, on the contrary, we should be really trying to increase dignity, mobility, and, you know, access to services in these areas. And you're right, lethality in these areas uh, are much higher Black people uh, in the country it's uh, 79% of the victims of police brutality. And when you see also the policemen that are killed, it's also uh, 65% of them are black. So it's, you know, they're also paying the price of this uh, hard, you know, mano dura approach uh, to fighting, and I'm an ineffective approach to fighting crime. And race is not, um, still not, an issue that is uh, mainstream in the debate as it is in the U.S. So the country has a very protected problem of racism. Uh, it's important to say Brazil, you know, was the last country in the Americas to abolish slavery. We haven't done the, the affirmative policies and re like a restorative policies uh, to really try to, to, you know, at least recognize uh, what happened to the five million black slaves that went to Brazil. And this is uh, an issue that is spending. It's uh, on the top of the agenda, I would say, for the progressive part of the population. 
but it's not accepted or not even seen by the other part. So I would say we have uh, to, you know, really move this agenda forward if we want a country that will consolidate its democracy, that will have um, like a single vision uh, in terms of uh, human dignity. And it's unfortunately uh, the reality. We are we are not there yet. We have, uh, if I'm not mistaken, like just in the state of Rio, in the height of you know the first uh, year of Bolsonaro government with uh, Vitzel, which was this governor, very much aligned with the same rhetoric. We had five people killed an hour per, per hour by the police, right? And almost, as you said, eighty percent, so three quarters, more than three quarters of them were black. And this is not in the order of the day. So, of course, there's a major problem. It's, it's something that uh, it's beyond, uh, you know, how do you put this into words? It's a shame. It's a shame and it's uh, an urgent issue that uh, we can't wait no more. And unfortunately, we have the wrong leadership to, to be, uh, you know, that they're not morally uh, linked to, to the well-being and you know, the, the basic, uh, basic rights of our population. I think, you know, some of the points you're making, right, about this conflict between um, perceptions of safety, I think, among certain parts of the Brazilian population, right, and this broader question of, of actually what does security and safety look like for Brazilians as a whole, right? How do you make sure that the country um, is safe for everyone? And I think that is really a fundamental challenge in Brazil and in many countries um, around the world. So if you're looking at, you know, how do you make policing um, more responsive, right, to the needs of local communities in favelas and in other um, neighborhoods across Brazil, you know, have you seen success stories? Are there, you know, projects that have shown promise? For sure. And there to say, you know, although uh, in Brazil as a whole, you know, this issue is seen as a problem, there are states, many states that don't have uh, police violence, uh, uh, you know, in the top of, you know, the negative agenda. So I'd say there are a handful of states in Brazil that are the outliers, including Rio uh, and many others that are doing the homework. There to say that the governor has a vision that the police has to work with, you know, the the technologies available that, you know, follow the process of law, uh, you know, pre, uh, uh, put people in prison and not don't kill them. Like the most basic things are just followed. And what I think is the biggest uh, constraint at the moment is the leadership model that incentivizes because also they need to manipulate fear and they need the police uh, as like electoral uh, just voters they use. So that's an important data. Uh, police in Brazil and their families, like if you take security forces, police, uh, the army and their families, they constitute 9% of voters in the Brazilian society. That's incredible. And they have been, you know, used uh, and misused because that's also manipulation and very little investment in what the police really needs to be a professional corporation. Uh, so they've been used as electoral, you know, mass. And uh, so in the end, what our politicians are selling is fear and then this uh, eternal negative cycle of violence. 
So what we've seen that uh, you know worked is is no different what the U.S. has done when you come to the prevention part. So really, like focusing on education, this from early childhood to you know uh, just the adolescents that, uh, that we see as the troublemakers, but could be the problem solvers. Like focus on that, you know, like. Uh, the whole uh, uh, bunch of uh, therapies that you can use, cognitive behavior therapy, uh, you know, going after the kids that are evading school. So on the one side, we've done this in several states in Brazil, and it's, it has uh, just uh, offered responses. And also on the police side, the Comstat model and the focus on investigating uh, just the violent crimes, uh, the states in Brazil that did that, uh, just also could, for for years that the policies are in place, they could control and reduce violence. And Rio indeed had that for a moment where we thought, you know, we were in a turning point in the state not long ago. But because of corruption, we had several, unfortunately, governors also put in jail. Uh, the police has lost, I'd say, the sense of uh, uh, command and control of the forces and I, I would um, argue that they are also not uh, benefiting at all from the misuse that uh, the leaders today uh, do of this corporation. So we know the recipes. We've done it. Brazil has several case studies of cities and states that reduced violence. The problem is continuity. And since society also suffers from the manipulation of fear, we don't engage in the issue to make sure that the success policies that they last over an election cycle. And I think that's what we're missing because we know the premises of a successful public policy, you have good leadership, evidence-based policy, but this participation of society will guarantee the continuation because you need that continuation to really uh, be able to, to sustain it in the long run. And, you know, apart from that, the technical agendas are all there. It's not that we lack knowledge. We don't lack, honestly, money. We lack the prioritization of that money. And we don't lack the, let's say, the the need. So uh, I would put that uh, we are trying to sell the vision of a safe Brazil under a democratic state. And we've been fighting against, you know, the whole narrative that is just uh, above the law, that uh, whatever it takes. And we know that this is an easy sell in a country that, you know, people do fear it's legitimate, but it's what is uh, just increasing over, like year after year, the suffering of our people. And again, uh, most, I'd say, disproportionate really, uh, on the vulnerable populations and the Black people of the country. Bringing this back to what happened in Jacarezinho, do you think that, you know, a month or two from now, people will still be paying attention? Um, I, mean, I don't want to end on a negative note, but I'm wondering if if something as horrific as, you know, the the, the operation in Jacarezinho has the potential to kind of change the narrative or drive some of these conversations forward in Brazil? I have to believe so. Uh, it's We're fighting a very loud minority. Like polarization is, you know, at its peak uh, in Brazil. And we are fighting 
again, it's a minority, but it's not such a small minority that still thinks that uh, a good bandit is a dead bandit, which is, you know, unfortunately a jargon of many of, of the country's politicians. But when we see that uh, they are also trying to hide, uh, you know, they they put the operation under confidentiality. And I think the population is starting to, to wake up and say, wait a minute, you know, uh, if they're doing this, if they're, you know, there's no control, civilian control over the use of force. If we're at the moment uh, going further and further in a kind of a populist authoritarian project, tomorrow it can be me, right? So I think the recognition that, you know, Black Lives Matter, but that uh, we are linked. And I think the pandemics brought this uh, to, I would say, the majority of uh, Brazilians as well, the sense of interconnection, the sense of interdependence. And I want to say that we can we can really, really turn this situation around, but I don't see this unless we can put back, I would say, the extremists to the minority without such a big platforms that they have today. They can't be in the center of power. You know, the extremists will always exist, but when they are controlling central power, we are all under threat. And I think most of the population got this message. And I hope Jacarezinho will serve as a turning point. For many people, I know it did, but not enough yet to turn the dial in terms of the political, I would say, mindset that is guiding the, the national debate at the moment. But we'll get there because I don't think there is a way out for Brazilians uh, unless, you know, they we all want to be in danger. So I think the message that we are all under threat, if that's the policy, if that's the security policy, that's the most, uh, I would say, the biggest failure of a democratic state is to allow this to happen unpunished, unrevised, un, you know, at least unspoken. We don't know actually what happened. So that's not acceptable. And uh, I, I do see a lot of voices in the society uh, going after that. We're not going to forget. might take time to really understand what happened and to learn the lessons and to make them stand uh, you know, as, as just a, a platform for change. But uh, we're, we're there and we're many groups in the society that will fight for, for this to happen. Thank you, Alona. We're going to have to leave it there, but I really appreciate the time you took to speak with us. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anya. And for those of you who are listening, if you want to learn more, you can go to igarapay.org.br. Until next time, this is the Brazil Institute podcast. The Brazil Institute podcast is produced by Oscar Cruz and edited by Sam Vicroy. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. For more on the subject discussed today, you can visit www.wilsoncenter.org/brazil. Until next time, thanks for listening.